So, well, hello, everybody. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here, and I am so excited to share with you this morning. We have been in the book of Acts all summer, and we're continuing that today. Uh, Last week, we heard from Tim Perry, and he took us through parts of Acts chapter 8. And today, we're actually going to go one chapter earlier to Acts chapter 7, um, to the story of Stephen. Um, And if you know anything about Stephen, you probably know that Stephen was the first martyr the first man killed for his faith in Jesus. But as we look at him today, we're not going to focus on his death. Instead, we're going to focus on the little sliver of information we get about his life. The the sermon title is Before the High Priest because Stephen had the chance to stand before the, the high priest in Jerusalem and declare who Jesus was. And it is an amazing story. But before we jump into that story, I've got a question for you all. What stirs you to action? Now, when I say what stirs you to action, what I'm asking is not, when your alarm clock goes off, do you, do you wake up? I'm not talking about, like, if, some, if your house started on fire, would you go try and put it out or call 911? What I'm asking when I say what stirs you to action is what makes you break routine? Where in your life, what stirs you to break your normal routine? For me, um... This isn't my belt, um, and this is, re- this is really important. My little brother's here, and he laughed at that, so I'm glad one person laughed at that. Hi, Nate. So he's with his boss slash wife. Um, she was, outranks him in the Air Force. They serve, so they're awesome people. So, yeah. Um, it's not Nate's belt either. Um, should clarify that, but... Um, On Wednesday this week, I I have a belt that I have had since junior high. It is a magnificent belt. Um, It is a belt that has black leather on one side, and then you pull at the buckle and flip it, and it has brown leather. So I can wear it with these shoes or with my Birkenstocks, and I'm always in style. And on Wednesday, that belt, the, the buckle part started to break off, and I noticed it, and I went, that's no good. On Thursday, I woke up, I came to church, and Thursday afternoon, our junior hires come in, and we're playing basketball, and I was like, man, this belt is not offering any support right now, Um, at all. It was, I was going like this a lot while we played basketball. I wasn't stirred to action, though. I just made sure I kept my pants up. On Friday, when I went to put my belt on, I looked at it, and I was like, this is completely broken. It's just barely held up right now. So I wore tighter pants. On Saturday, like Saturday night, we're going through like, all right, Matt, what bow tie? What are you going to wear? You know, Jess is helping me out and we're talking about it. And then she goes, man, that belt is completely ruined. And I was like, I know. I mean, I could have drove to Walmart because Walmart's still open. It was like 1030. I was like, no, we'll just, it'll work. What finally stirred me to action was this morning when I put the belt on and I came to church It's just like this awkward, I shouldn't be, it's just this awkward like saggy thing that's just about to fall off. And what I was worried about is if I started preaching and it fell and clanked to the ground, I would never recover. I would just, you guys would be like, the sermon was weird today. Matt just laughed a lot. That's that's all that would have happened. And so what finally stirred me to action this morning was just staring at it and going, no, I need a new belt. And so I texted Daniel K., one of our students. Um, and he, he brought me some belts. And if you don't know Daniel, um, he's, he's a kid in our youth group. Um, and he's, he's an amazing kid, actually. Um, he's one of the kids who got baptized on the mission trip. He is awesome. He's also very stylish. And so Daniel brought me two options. And I wore this belt in the first service. And I, I just want to give him props for bringing that belt. Because otherwise, I mean, my pants would stay up. They're tight enough. But without a belt, I'm just not accessorized for preaching. So, so all that to say, what stirred me to action this week in four days, it took me four days of this belt's not going to work, to finally text a student the morning I was going to preach saying, hey, are you coming to first service? Do you have an extra black belt? And he did. So thank you, Daniel. He's serving somewhere right now. So if you see him later, tell him good job. Nice belt. It's a, it's a great belt. That, that's something that stirred me to action, although it took me a long time. 
Another thing that stirs me to action, this is our dog, Ash. He is the cutest dog. Um, He sits on our couch, looking out the window with his head resting on his paws all day. When we are not home, he sits there waiting for us to return. If I get home before Jess, he like gets all excited. Hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. And then he goes right back to there. He's the cutest dog. He is also so annoying. Because at night, something that has stirred me to action recently, we have new neighbors. And I want our new neighbors to like us. I, and I want to be a good neighbor to them. And one of the unfortunate things about living in downtown Huntley is there's this one house, and if this is your house, talk to me after, and I'll explain why this is wrong. Um, there is a house that they have like 20 black cats that are all outdoor cats. Um, and I'm not a cat person, but, but what really bothers me is at night, when Ash goes out, if the cats are in our yard or right around our yard, Ash will not stop barking. And he will bark, and he will bark, and he will bark, and you'll go out to get him, and he'll look at you and think you're playing, and he'll run away. And so what has stirred me to action in order to be a good neighbor is I've been taking Ash for more walks at night. I, I even, uh, like Thursday, I took him for a walk when it was like sprinkling out, and I had an umbrella, because I was like, I would rather walk him right now than have to chase him around in the backyard while he barks and wakes up all our neighbors. And so that is something that stirs me to action. Okay, there we, yeah, we can leave Ash up the whole, here we go, sorry about that. So what stirs you to action? As I ask this, you also, uh, a thing that stirs us to action, having Nate and Paige here, we were just going to do like our normal routine on Saturday, and I was like, no, we have family in, we're going to eat a brisket. And so we ate a lot of brisket, and it was wonderful. What stirs me to action is any excuse to smoke meat. Um, and, and I ask this, and you may be trying to think, all right, what stirs me to action? Another question here, and a, a harder question, do your beliefs stir you to action? Do your beliefs stir you to action? About a month ago, not even a month ago, uh, early in July, there was a group of protesters who shut down a big chunk of the Dan Ryan. And I'm not going to talk about the politics of it, but I know that a lot of people were proud of them for what they did. And they posted with pride. I know a lot of people who were very frustrated that they shut down a major interstate and posted with frustration. I know a lot of people who posted and said things like, I'm really frustrated that they would do this and why weren't the police involved? And then I know other people who responded to those that said, well, the police were a part of the march. The police commissioner was walking with them. It was a protest that was legally started. The the point of this is not to say good, bad, or whatever. The point of this is to say there were people on both sides of this that were willing because of their beliefs to go out and do this. And there were people that were willing to voice their opinions pro or con. Do your beliefs stir you to action? And finally, a really hard question. Does the Holy Spirit stir you to action? Now, you may look at this and say, that's the same as the last question. Do your beliefs stir you to action? But it's not. Because, you see, I I believe what the Bible says, and so hopefully I take actions according to that. But when we say, does the Holy Spirit stir you to action, the, the question we should be thinking is, when I feel a prompting from the Holy Spirit, do I follow it? When, I, when the Holy Spirit is nudging at me, do I listen? Or do I ignore it? That's what we're going to look at today. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together. And Father, I pray that your spirit would be moving in this room. As we look at the story, we recognize that the Holy Spirit that was in Stephen in Acts chapter 7 is the same that is in us today. And Father, I pray you would stir us to take action, to not resist you, to not resist your spirit, but instead to be those who hear what you have for us and obey. I pray for my words, Lord, that they would not be mine, but that it would be your spirit speaking through me. And I pray you would give us all ears to hear and that we would leave today ready to take action for your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And the high priest said, are these things so? The start of Acts chapter 7 is this moment. There's a man named Stephen and he is standing alone before the high priest. And the high priest is the highest 
judge in Jerusalem of the Jewish people. At this time in history, the Roman Empire is over Jerusalem, but in Jerusalem, they let the high priest and a group reign as like their, their government reigns and they rule over the Jewish people. And so the high priest, who is the head, essentially, of the Jewish people, the Jewish religion, he is at the top. He is looking at Stephen, this man, and he is, he is in the position to judge him. And he looks at Stephen and he says, are these things so? But it's not just the high priest. The high priest is not alone. You see, in Jewish culture, what would happen is there's this group, whenever they judged, it wouldn't just be one high priest. It would be a group called the Sanhedrin. They were a council of priests, of law, of the, those who were experts of the law, of scribes. And, and when I say law, I don't mean like a modern lawyer. A, a biblical lawyer was someone who the first five books of the Bible was their expertise in that time. And so Stephen is not standing just before the high priest. Stephen is standing before 71 of the most influential, wisest, most best Jewish people in all of Jerusalem in ancient Israel, and he's standing before them as they sit, as the high priest looks at him and says, are these things so? And they are tasked with the responsibility of hearing what he has to say and then judging him. These 71 men. And so Stephen stands alone before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And it's not just them, because in the corner are Stephen's accusers. Stephen was accused by a group of men that were from a synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Um, This is like a a little side thing, but the the Synagogue of the Freedmen would have been full of Jews who were a step removed from Jerusalem and the land of Israel. You see, the Romans, when they took over a place, they did this thing called, it was like the Hellenist movement. And what they would do is they would take over a place and they would say, all right, how do we make these people docile? And how do we make them look more and more like Roman citizens? Well, what they'd do is they'd let them keep some of their beliefs, but then make them believe some of the Roman things. And they'd let them keep a lot of parts of their culture, but they would make them speak Greek. They would make them become more and more like the Romans. And so these men in the corner are men from all over except for Jerusalem. And they are accusing Stephen in this moment. And the reason that they are accusing him is because Stephen has been out among the Hellenist Jews telling them all about Jesus. And these men hate that. Because if, 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 if Stephen is among them saying those things, then the council, that the Sanhedrin, the super Jews, the top leaders of the Jewish movement are going to look at those Hellenist Jews and think less of them for allowing this guy to speak. And so they've brought Stephen before the council of 71 men to have him tried. And so when the high priest says, are these things so? He's asking about the allegations or the accusations made by these Jews that are Hellenist Jews, Greek Jews. And what's interesting is Stephen is a Greek Jew. Stephen is a Jewish name, or a Greek name, not a Jewish name. And so that gives us just a little bit of insight that he would have been from the same movement. The, the, what's interesting is that Stephen also, the, the place where he were first introduced to him is because he's serving the Hellenist widows that have joined in with the Jesus movement. And so Stephen is being accused by the men that he's going to save who are a part of where he came from and he's going among them and now they've brought him before the high priest. And when the high priest asks, are these things so? The accusations against Stephen are major. You see, the first accusation against Stephen is uh, he has spoken blasphemy against God. The second is he's spoken blasphemy against Moses. If you know anything about the Jewish faith, that's like there's no more strikes after that. Um, That is everything that needs to be said. He has spoken blasphemy against God and Moses. But they go on and they say more because not only has he done those two things, he's spoken blasphemy against the law and against the temple. These are some huge, huge charges against him. In fact, the charges, the Sanhedrin, where the high priest is asking, are these things so? The Sanhedrin does not have the right to kill Stephen. But these are charges that in the Jewish faith would have been worthy of the death penalty. And so when the high priest asks that, he's saying, do you deserve to die? Defend yourself. And what's even more interesting is when Stephen is standing there, everyone in that room knows that not only is this worthy of the death penalty to the Jewish people, 
the Romans will also treat it the same way. If he's speaking blasphemy, the Romans will kill him as well. And that's because they don't want to deal with an uprising. They don't want to deal with an upset people group. So they'll stamp it out just as well as the Jewish council will. The stakes are high. And what's even more interesting, so, so the Sanhedrin, if you've ever read the book of Luke, the end of the book of Luke, when Jesus is arrested, he stands before these same 71 men. And the charges against him are trumped up. In fact, the charges that Jesus is taken to the Roman authorities for, the, the Sanhedrin says to Jesus, they say, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, you guys are saying that. And they said, you hear it with his ears. And then they take him to be killed. This is the same council that is looking at Stephen right now. And it's the same men. And the accusers, what's interesting, we know that these charges are trumped up. We know that everyone in the room knew that. The 71 men looking at Stephen, they know that these charges are trumped up, but they're sick of this movement. When the high priest says, are these things so, what's going on in his head and the men of the council is, how has it come to this? Who is Stephen? He's a, he's a Greek Jew. He is a few steps removed from Jesus. When they killed Jesus, they thought the movement would die with him. But since they killed Jesus, they've had Peter and John, two of his followers, in front of them. And Peter and John did such a miraculous sign that even though they told them, stop talking about Jesus, they couldn't kill them because they were worried that the people would rise up because of how miraculous the sign was. And so the Jesus movement has been growing. And in fact, in Acts chapter 5, All 12 of the apostles, the men who originally followed Jesus, are brought before this same council. And when these men are brought before the council, the council says, we have asked you to stop talking about Jesus. Now it's interesting, if you're wondering why they're saying stop talking about Jesus, it's because if what they are saying about Jesus is true, then the 71 men sitting are guilty of murdering the Messiah. And so when those 12 men were in front of the Sanhedrin and said, sorry, we don't answer to men, we answer to God, they were ready to kill the 12 disciples, the leaders of this movement. And the only reason they didn't is because one of them stood up and said, hey, if this is of God, we don't want to stop it. But if this is of men, why should we bloody our hands when they're going to wind up dead in a few years anyways? And he mentioned other uprisings that had happened and how they'd fallen away. And he says... To the whole council, this one member of the council, he says, if this is of God, we're not going to be able to stop it. And now, shortly after that, Stephen, not one of the original 12, Stephen, based on everything we know about him, our best guess is he became a believer after the Pentecost. So after Acts chapter 2, somewhere in there he became a believer. He's a follower of the movement. And, And when the high priest asks her these things, so he's talking to a man that has gone out and begun doing exactly what the disciples did. The disciples were going out every day and they were, they were preaching and they were doing wondrous and miraculous signs and they were telling the people all about Jesus and they were full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen is doing the same thing among the Hellenist Jews. He's telling everyone he can, let me tell you about Jesus and what he has done. And when Stephen goes out among the Jews, what's really interesting is as he's talking to them, these men that are accusing him, they've risen up against him and they tell him, you say that, but what about this? You say that, but what about this? The same way that the Pharisees were saying to Jesus in the book of Luke. And every time they do that, they cannot withstand the wisdom and power in which Stephen speaks. And so the high priest is looking at Stephen. And he's thinking, it's spread. He's thinking, this movement is still growing. We need to do something. So when he says, are these things so, he's giving Stephen a chance to respond, but he's also thinking, how am I going to respond to whatever he says? Because this movement isn't just affecting other Jewish people. This movement we learned in Acts chapter 6 is affecting the priests, the men who were in charge of running the temple. Many of them are hearing from the disciples, and they're hearing from the apostles, and they're hearing from this movement, and they're going over to it. And so the 71 men sitting there are sitting there thinking, we've got to do something. We've got to stop this movement. And so the high priest asks, are these things so? And there's the 71 men, there's the accusers, and there's one man standing before him alone. The 71 men are seated, and there's terror in the room. 
It's not Stephen, though. This is like the coolest thing as I was studying this. I was really excited about this. When, when Stephen is standing there, it says that the 71 men who were sitting on the council are gazing at him. And gaze is a weird word, like gazing at him. I don't know. I gaze at Jess because she's so beautiful. But, but the idea of gazing in this story, they are staring intently at him. They are deeply focused on him. And they are staring at him. And it says that they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, when we hear that in a modern understanding, parents, you might say, like, our baby, when he's asleep, is like an angel, and then he wakes up. Or you might say, I remember when you were an angel to your teenager. I remember those days when you were innocent and peaceful and serene. But in in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, the two books written by Luke, when the word angel comes up like this, anytime people encounter an angel, the response is they are paralyzed with fear. Paralyzed with fear. When, when they are staring at Stephen, they are staring at him, and they are absolutely terrified. Stephen's not. When the high priest says, are these things so? The only one in the room who is not filled, gripped with fear, filled with terror, is the man who looks like a messenger of God. There's an echo here of Moses, who Moses would go up on top of Mount Sinai and he'd talk to God up there and he'd come down and the Israelites would make him wear a veil over his face because of how it shone. And the people were afraid of him then, the same way the Sanhedrin is afraid of this man now. And so the high priest asks, are these things so? And Stephen, who was not a disciple, who is a follower who started after the Pentecost, he hasn't been a follower very long, by our best understanding of the timeline of Acts. He's ready to respond. If you've got your bulletin, in the bulletin there's a a green sheet. I've got his whole speech there. It is the longest speech in Acts. We're going to read all of it at once. And the reason we're going to do that is because it is so amazing the way Stephen responds when he is asked, are these things so? And so we're going to read that right now. And as we do, I want to remind you as we started up the charges against him. He's charged with blasphemy against Moses and against God. He's charged with blasphemy against the law and against the temple. And the high priest says, are these things so? And here's how Stephen responds. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from the land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after, they have, and after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt, over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent out and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But at that time, as the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. 
And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt, of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God had given them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when, the 40 year, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice, the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and then the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us a God who will go before us. As for Moses who led us out from this land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Malak and the star of your god Raphan, the images you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of, wilderness, a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to ask to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? We're going to stop here for a moment. I love this. Um, If you've never read through the Old Testament, you just got a crash course of everything. Um, And what's really interesting, if you remember the charges, we're going to review those now. The first charge, blasphemy against God and Moses. Second, the other charge, the, the blasphemy against the law and against the temple. Some scholars read this story and read Stephen's response. And they say, Stephen is given the chance to defend himself. And he doesn't. And if you think about it for a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to broaden your minds hopefully to this, but if you think about it for a moment, when the high priest looks at Stephen and he says, are these things so? Do you know what a really good response would be in my opinion? They're not. They're not so. This isn't what I did. That's all he really needed to say here, right? Like he, he doesn't need to launch into this whole theological understanding and timeline of the Bible. He could just say, they're trumped up charges. Can we go? He doesn't need to say any of the things he says. But when Stephen is given the opportunity, he says, you guys think I I speak blasphemy against Moses and God? Let me tell you the story of Moses. And you know what? 
the way I'm going to tell you the story of Moses is to tell you the story of Abraham. Because you know who Moses is? Moses is the fulfillment of a covenant God made with Abraham. God made this promise to Abraham. By the way, when God made the promise to Abraham, the starting point, God reached out to, to Abraham when he was in the land of Babylon and said, hey, how about you go over this way? And God spoke to him, and Abraham started to go. And then God spoke to him again, and then he finally got all the way into the land in which they're now standing. So Stephen's starting point is, you guys think that you guys think that the biggest idea here is Moses, but that might be a little narrow. Because Moses was a fulfillment of something God had promised. And, and there's a theme in this story. There's a couple themes. One of them, if you notice, he starts off, Stephen says, brothers and fathers. Over and over he talks about the fathers who rejected the ones that God would use. So when he says brothers and fathers, and then he starts talking about how bad the fathers were, it's not very subtle. And, and Stephen in this moment, when he's talking to them, and when he says, look at how Joseph was rejected by his brothers and God still used him. He goes on to say, look at how Moses was rejected. God raises up Moses to save the Israelites. And Moses starts to do it. He saves one Israelite and they immediately reject him. Immediately reject him. And then Moses comes back 40 years later and he saves them and takes them into the wilderness. God uses him to redeem the people of Israel. They cross the Red Sea. There's all the plagues. There's everything that happens. The Egyptian army is wiped out before the glory of God and his servant Moses. And Moses takes them out and he starts to tell, all right, I'm going to go up the mountain and talk to God. When I come down, we'll know what to do next. And Moses goes up and he's not even gone that long. And the people are like, you know what? We need something else to worship. They rejected him so fully that before he even brought them the law, they'd already moved on to something else. Stephen's point is not subtle. Stephen is saying, hey, look, you guys are worried about Moses here, but Moses was rejected by the people in his day. They did not believe in what he had to say at all. And then the charge about the, the law there, it talks about Moses bringing down the living oracles. The people didn't even follow the living oracles, the, the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. They didn't follow it the way they were supposed to in the first place. So you're worried about this right now? And then he goes on to say you're worried about the temple. The temple's your focus. Can I point out that this story starts in the land of Babylon. It goes to another place called Haran. Then it goes into Israel. Then it moves to Egypt. And then it goes to this mountain, Mount Sinai, which isn't where the temple was built. But on this mountain, Moses is standing there and God, and God tells him, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And then it goes back and then they have a tent. And so Stephen right here is saying, guys, this temple, it's, this temple's great, probably, but this temple is not the focus. God is not just here in the temple. Let's not think God is confined to this building because you know what? God, the heavens are his throne, the earth is his footstool, and you're focused on this little temple. There's so much more we could be focused on and so much more we should be focused on. Stephen is talking to 71 experts of the law. And in his speech, he shows them, you guys think Moses, God, temple, law. Let me show you the wider range of the Bible. By the way, the only evidence he uses is scripture. He uses the same authority that they swear by and shows them a broader picture and basically says, you guys are too narrow-minded about the thing that you hold most dear. Let me widen your horizons about it. And he does that and he comes to the end and this would be a good moment for him to say, well, what do you guys think? But he doesn't say that. I love this moment uh, and it's a hard moment. Stephen looks at them after he mentions the, the passage about heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And he looks at them and he says, you stiff-necked people. He's looking at the leaders of the Jewish people, the 71 members of the great Sanhedrin, and he calls them stubborn. And the word stiff-necked was a word used in Exodus when the people were in the wilderness, when they refused God. God would call them stiff-necked and he would wipe out hundreds and thousands of them because of how wicked they were. And, and Stephen is looking at this Jewish ruling council in the temple and he says, you are the stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Uncircumcised in heart and ears is referring to they may look good on the outside, but on the inside there is no transformation. On the inside they're wicked. They haven't, it hasn't hit them here at all. You always resist the Holy Spirit. 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. You're stubborn. What's on the outside doesn't match what's on the inside. And you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's amazing. This isn't, this isn't a man who followed Jesus for three years. This is a man who heard about him from the, the apostles, who, who became a believer later on. This is a man who, when he stands before the Sanhedrin, has every motivation to just say, you know what? None of that's true. Please don't kill me. But instead, he says to them what needs to be said. He was accused and now he is the accuser. He looks at them in this moment and he says, you're the ones who should be on trial. And what's interesting, uh, we're going to go into a little bit of Jewish court history. Because what would happen um, in those days is so the accusers would speak. And after the accuser spoke, the high priest would look to the defense and say, all right, now your turn. And after the defendant spoke, the high priest or one of the members of the council would stand. And they would issue a verdict. And that would be the verdict of the whole council. And in this moment, Stephen is supposed to, one of the high priest members are supposed to stand, or one of the Sanhedrin members, and they're supposed to offer up a verdict. But instead of Stephen defending himself and saying, I'm innocent, Stephen accuses them. Stephen goes from defendant to prosecution. And after Stephen accuses them, what's interesting, the very next verse. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now what's funny, the language of ground their teeth. is like, like they're angry, you know, they're grinding their teeth. But, but what's really interesting is he accuses them. And so now if we're looking at this as a courtroom, now they're on the defense. And what do they say in response to him? They can't even open their mouths. They grind their teeth, they're shut. They're unable to respond. And remember, remember what I said, the accuser would speak, the, the defense would speak, and then the high priest would stand to issue a verdict. But he, Stephen, full of, holy, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The judge is standing on behalf of the innocent party. And how do they respond to that? They cry out with a loud voice and they stop up their ears and they rush together at him. I imagine 71 members of SOS all going like this and, ah, and charging at somebody in this moment. They, these are men that are respected in the community. They are the men at the top of the community. They are supposed to be the most respectable, most knowledgeable, most wise. And they are so enraged by his words that they stop up their ears like, and they rush at him together. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. What's really interesting in this moment, uh, stoning, um, you may think that they just like chuck some stones at him, but what stoning was in that time period, they would have taken Stephen to a height that was at least twice as tall as him and they would have pushed him off. And with his legs unable to move, they would have stood over looking down and they would have dropped rocks, stones, large ones down, trying to crush him to death. The goal was to land him on his chest. And they would do that until the man died and then they'd cover the body with stones. In, in Jewish culture, what should have happened if they found him guilty is they should have stripped him of his outer garments. He'd be bare-chested in just his undergarments and they should have walked him out of the city. It should have been seen that this man is guilty as he walked through the city. And when they left the city to stone him, all of the witnesses, the member of the council would all drop the stones on him after dropping him from a high place. His bare-chestedness would have been a sign of his guilt to all the people who saw. Look what it says. And the witnesses, the members of the Sanhedrin, the accusers, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and then they stoned him. The guilty are marked by their actions in this story, and it's so amazing what happens here. Because Stephen in this story 
goes from the accused to the accuser, and he is found innocent of all charges by Jesus who stands at the right hand of God. And the men that he tells, you're the ones who killed the righteous one, you killed Jesus. They show with their actions after his accusation that he was absolutely right. Remember, they don't have the right to kill him or to stone him. They don't have the right to do that. The Romans would have been ticked off that they did this. But they do it because they are so angry because they don't want to hear what he has to say. So we come to the end of this. Um, This is such an amazing story. And it's a story that um, when I started prepping for this, my first thought was, are we ready to die for our faith? And where I go back to with this, we actually, Jess and I, a former student came and stayed with us on Friday night. And uh, as I was telling him about what I was preaching on, it reminded me of a conversation we had when he was like 14 or 15. We had this whole talk about, it'd be really cool to be a martyr. It'd be really cool to go to some closed off country and to preach the gospel and to eventually be killed for your faith. And, and he was like 14 or 15, I was like 21 at the time, and we had this whole talk. And at the end of our talk, we, we got together a few weeks later and we were talking about it again. And when we talked about it again, what came out of our conversation was not, man, it would be really cool to die for our faith. What, what came out of our conversation was, we talk about dying for our faith, but have you been in the Word this week? Have you been praying this week? Well, not really. Maybe a little. We weren't really living for the faith that we said we'd die for. And so as we look at the story of Stephen, I don't want to focus on are you willing to die for your faith. Hopefully you are, but also hopefully you live in the United States. I, if you're worried about dying for your faith in the United States, come tell me where you're living. I, I want to know because I don't, think, I don't think even at the worst that we're very likely to be killed explicitly for our faith in the United States. It may come someday. And if it does, I hope that we as a church are prepared and preparing the next generation for it. But the reality is, is today we're not talking about will you die for your faith, but we want to talk about will you live for your faith. And how do you live for your faith based on what we learned from Stephen's life? You have to ask yourself the question, where in my life do I resist the Holy Spirit? Where in your life are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Because the reason Stephen is ready for this moment is because in Stephen's life, he is so open to what the Holy Spirit has for him. uh, Jesus is described in Luke as being full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is described in Acts chapter 6 as being full of the Holy Spirit. Very few other people in the Bible are ever given that status. That is a big deal. Stephen is open. When the Holy Spirit prompts him and tells him to do something, Stephen responds and says, I will do it. Now, if you're sitting out here, hopefully you have an answer to this question. Where am I resistant to the Holy Spirit? And if if you're a believer today, you claim Christ has died on the cross for you. you, you claim that you're sealed with salvation into his family, you're adopted into the family and made a full heir, if you believe all of that, then you should have the Holy Spirit, and you should honestly have an answer to, where do I resist the Holy Spirit? If you don't, I'm worried about you, because the older I get, the more wicked I know I am, and the more I know where I try and resist the Holy Spirit, and the more I need a community around me to help me not. So if you're sitting out there and you feel like, well, I don't really ever hear the Holy Spirit, so how could I resist it? My next question for you is one that I heard on our mission trip. This was really cool on our mission trip. I'd never heard this quote before. It's by A.W. Tozer. Most Christians don't hear God's voice because we've already decided we aren't going to do what he says. If you're sitting out there and you're thinking, I don't know where I'm resistant to the Holy Spirit, think back to the last time you felt God prompting you to do something. Did you do it? If you didn't do it, then maybe, maybe that's the step you need to take today. Where are you resistant to the Holy Spirit? The reality is, is that it is very easy for us to become so busy with life, with work, with everything else to where we can just, the Holy Spirit can become white noise along with everything else. We're going to do a little activity to close today. We're just about done. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you. I want you to think of an answer to this question. Where in your life do you resist the Holy Spirit? And then I want you to go out and I want you to tell somebody. If you're a husband, tell your wife. And then when she says, I thought you were falling asleep, you can be like, nah uh that, that was my family's drive home every day when I was in like middle school. My mom would be like, you weren't even awake. And my dad would be like, yes, I was. <laughs> Nate's laughing, my little brother. But, but husbands, impress your wives with your ability to listen. Wives, impress your husbands with the same thing. Students, if you're here, I encourage you, tell one of your parents. Here's something I've been struggling with. 
parents, I encourage you even more, tell your students. Because one of the biggest lies that students fear is they worry, maybe, maybe, we don't ha- maybe I don't have it figured out enough. And they may think you have it all figured out. They don't think you have everything figured out, but they may not be sure that they're allowed to have doubts and struggles in their faith. So model that for them. And then let them model it back to you. Now, there's no bad questions, you know, or no stupid questions. But in, in this question, there are really bad answers. Where in your life do you resist the Holy Spirit? A bad answer to that question. If you go out of here today and you call your accountability partner and say, hey, the pastor today challenged me to go tell someone where I resist the Holy Spirit. And I just want to tell you, I don't do what the Holy Spirit says sometimes. That's like on our mission trip. We got back from our mission trip and one of the moms was telling me that on the drive home with, with her daughter, she was asking her, how did the trip go? What did you do? And her daughter said, good, fine, things." That's the equivalent of that right there. A good answer. There is a neighbor I really don't know and God is prompting me to reach out to him, but I'm unwilling. I, don't, I, I either fear rejection or I just, I, I think I'm too busy for that. But you feel the Holy Spirit tugging you to do that and you're like, no, I'm not going to. Share that with somebody and then let them be your accountability on it. A bad answer is I don't pray enough. That's so vague. We all don't pray enough anyway, so, so do better. A good answer would be the Spirit is reminding me to pray, but I find myself unable because I am too busy. Do you see the difference? I'm saying what the Spirit's calling me to do and then saying why it's a struggle for me. And the final one, a bad answer to where in your life do you resist the Holy Spirit is to just say, well, I'm in a season of helping others. This is um, earlier this week. There's a reason I wear a bow tie. It's a long story. It's a professor from Moody, and there's a whole weird long story behind it, but I love the man. And uh, whenever I preach, I call him up and tell him, here's what I'm thinking about. And I called him up this week, or maybe last week. I called him up at some point to tell him about the angel thing, the, the, the face like an angel. And I was like, have you ever heard that before? Because I'm studying this. I, I see all this evidence. What do you think of that? And I called him up to talk about that. And his response was, what are you learning as you study this? What's God doing in your heart? And all of my answers for him were the things I wanted to say to all of you, but none of it was internal here. And I got off the phone with him, and I was just cut. I was like, man, I'm going to get up on Sunday morning and say, how are you resisting the Holy Spirit when I'm using, I'm preaching as an excuse to not let the Holy Spirit talk to me? And that, that was not comfortable. It was not good. And so a good answer for me with this was I focus on helping others take next steps, often ignoring the steps the Spirit is prompting me to take. When we go on mission trips, it's usually Monday and Tuesday of the mission trip. I'm just focused on the kids, and by Wednesday, I'm like feeling spiritually dry as all the kids are feeling like on a spiritual high. And it usually, like, it, it's like a cycle. Every, every trip we go on, like Wednesday night, I'm like, oh, Lord, you're so amazing. But I, I don't get there until a ways into the trip because I'm so focused on other people that I'm not even modeling how to not resist the Holy Spirit on my own. And I use that need to help others to hide from following what the Spirit is prompting me to do. I don't like sharing this with all of you. I, re- I really don't. Um, I, I really don't like doing this, but I want to encourage you that, that sharing the gospel, having conversations about what Jesus in, is doing in your life, or having conversations like this where you share your struggles and how God is helping you overcome or how you hope God will help you overcome. Because the same spirit that was in Stephen in the, in the book of Acts is the same spirit that we have today. And as you leave today, I want to challenge you to take this out. Go tell someone what your struggles are. Go tell someone where you're resisting the Holy Spirit. And be a part of a community that can lift you up. And the payoff for this, the reason that this is worth doing, is simple. Because when we do this, we become more and more like Jesus when we stop resisting the Holy Spirit and start moving more and more to be like Christ. And the evidence of that are the final two sentences that Stephen says. Oh, we're skipping that one. And as they were stoning Stephen, he's lying on the ground. They're dropping these stones on him. The guilty party is there. As they're stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When Jesus was on the cross in, in Luke, he says, Father, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
he asked God to forgive them as they're killing him for telling them what they need to hear. They are resisting the Spirit. They have killed the righteous one. And Stephen is looking at them as they kill him. And as they murder him, because they have no right to kill him in this moment. He's innocent before God and before man. And as they kill him, he looks at the men who are killing him. And he says, Lord, forgive them. Just like when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Church, when we stop resisting the Holy Spirit, we will live more and more like Stephen. And that's something that we all can do. We can all take those steps. Stephen on his own was a man full of grace, wisdom, and faith. But what he was most full of was the Holy Spirit. And because of that, the Lord used him to do these miraculous things. And his death mirrors the death of Jesus. I hope we can live like that. I hope our lives can mirror the life of Jesus the way his does. Let's pray. Dear Father, you are so good. And you are so good to a people who do not deserve you, who all through the Old Testament rejected you, who all through the New Testament, the people that were supposed to be your people, were rejecting those who were open to the Holy Spirit. And yet you used those people and you declared or you showed us who you were more and more and people can become more and more like your son Jesus because of what you have done for us. I thank you that we have the opportunity to have the same Holy Spirit that Stephen had. And I pray that we are a church that is not resistant to the Holy Spirit. I pray that more and more we look like a bunch of Stevens. I pray that more and more as we go out from here, I pray for the things that are on our hearts where we know, man, I'm resistant to the Holy Spirit in this. I I pray that you would be working in our hearts and in our minds as we leave and your Spirit would just be prompting us to talk. I pray we wouldn't resist the Spirit and not say anything to anyone. That would be a travesty if we resist the Spirit that much today. I pray for anyone here that does not know you, that is maybe feeling a prompting from the Spirit and they have no idea what it is, that they would reach out to someone after this and hear more and more about who you are. And Father, I thank you again for Stephen, a man who shows us that we can live like your son and be fully engaged like your son was. And I I thank you that you give us that opportunity to be a part of the work you want to do in this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.